Welcome. You're listening to the AI Infusion podcast series hosted by Shalini Kapoor. Hello everyone. Uh, and thank you Jeff for producing this podcast series for us. Dear listeners, I'm your host Shalini Kapoor, IBM fellow, welcoming you all to the next episode of our podcast series on AI Infusion. In this podcast, we not just tell you about artificial intelligence, we understand what does it take for enterprises to infuse AI in their business processes. We bring you experts and practitioners across the globe who are creating, innovating and deploying AI. So what's special in this episode? Ladies and gentlemen, this time I have an industry icon, a scientist a storyteller a philosopher a stalwart who is recognized internationally for his innovative work in software engineering and architecture by the way any software engineer worth his or her salt would know him i am deeply honored to welcome grady booch on this episode today grady is chief scientist of software engineering He is an IBM fellow, ACM fellow and IEEE fellow. Having co-founded the Unified Modeling Language, he has published 6 books and several hundred technical articles. He has several awards including the Computer Pioneer Award and the Lovelace Medal. So ladies and gentlemen, this episode 8 of AI Infusion is about future of software and AI. and we cannot have a better person talk about this than grady as he has written the history of software and dear listeners i'm really looking forward to hear his views on what the future holds for us welcome grady to the ai infusion podcast thank you for having me it's a pleasure oh it's 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 i i feel so honored to to have you here today well you mentioned that i may be known in the software engineering field but Keep in mind there are about 7.8 billion people on this earth and the vast vast majority of them have absolutely no clue who I am and I'm okay with that. Yeah, is you know when you write the history of software and the moment you you know you start you pick any book of software engineering they need to know you but that's okay. <laughs> okay. So uh let's get into our first question. Um so Grady you created the right methodology for software engineering systems. Um I know when I started reading about it I would I would read about uh, you know what 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 you had created. And programming is programming the right way is what you taught this world. Now how is this different or maybe similar from ai systems uh, are they intertwined um, i know ai has been around for a lot of years but you know it's picked up a lot of momentum so how do you see the difference or the similarity with with ai systems well you're kind to say that i developed the right way to do software i'm one of many who has done a good way the first golden age of software engineering was in the 60s and 70s where the dominant mechanism of abstraction was algorithms but then as we began to move toward distributed systems as we began to move to systems of increasing complexity it was clear that those methodologies didn't work and so i and my colleagues and really my work stands side by side with hundreds of others in this space 
we came to realize that there's a different way and it is a way that is effective for this kind of complexity. And that's looking at object-oriented decomposition and all that means. We're on the cusp of a new generation of the golden age of software engineering. And so to answer your question, let me look at it in three different ways. The first is we have to realize that symbolic systems of which most of us have grown up on are Turing complete just as are neural networks. They are from a Turing complete perspective, just as expressive, but of course they have different approaches to uh, how I write them, their latency, their scalability, um, their performance. And so while they may be computationally equivalent, equivalent, there are certainly differences. So that's that level. That's the first bit. Secondly, there are tremendous similarities in the sense of there exist both patterns for design as well as architecture for both of them. In fact, Andruff, the gentleman who's lead of AI for Tesla, made the observation that building neural networks is pretty much the same kind of problems as building symbolic systems. You have to deal with versioning, testing is important, requirements analysis is important, and whereas we deal with versioning of our software today, our code, you have to deal with the versioning of the models themselves. Yeah. So I'm delighted to see that the AI community in many ways is rediscovering the things that we did in the last several decades of software engineering. And I think that's because there are some fundamentals to software engineering that transcend all of this. Now, if you were to invite me back 10 to 15 years from now, I'd be talking to you about the Turing completeness of quantum systems because they're gonna be another generation, but we'll save that for a future podcast. Are they intertwined? Absolutely, and I think in some deliciously exquisite ways. So on the one hand, we see a lot of discussion and energy about the latest neural network doing this or that. I'm particularly enamored of uh, AlphaFold, which is of course a uh, a long variation in the history of all the way from Alpha uh, Go to Alpha Zero and the many others. But what's interesting about looking at that from the lens of a software engineer is that, yes, there are some wonderful things that have been done on the neural network side. Indeed, the transformer architecture is what's dominant there, but there's still an awful lot of, of symbolic stuff that has to surround it. So the really interesting problem, I think, for those of us who are trying to bring AI into the marketplace is that it's not an AI problem, but rather it's a systems engineering problem that has AI components within it. And the result of that is that we leverage the best we know in AI, but we combine that together with all that we've learned over the decades in building software intensive systems. So it's a, it's a wonderful marriage between the two. And therefore it's an exciting time to be in this business. Yeah, no, you, you got a right point that, you know, they both are completely intertwined. And yes, it's a, it's a marriage which has happened. Uh, now, now can, you, can you tell me that, you know, the whole software development process, the way we build software, the engineering cycle to maybe release a product, how can we use AI to make that more agile, to nimble, faster, and, and not just that efficient, innovative? So how can we use AI? I, I know you are, you know, you you created the whole software engineering process and the right language for it. But now how can AI in the in the, in the current times you see it adding value 
to that process? Well, that's the right question to ask. And, and let me expand upon the subtleness of your question, because it's not how do I develop with AI, but I think you're asking the question, how can what I do in AI actually contribute to how I build software, no matter what kind of software it is? And we're seeing some tantalizing first steps in that, in that place. Uh, Microsoft, in conjunction with uh, OpenAI and the GPT-3 work, has developed, of course, Copilot. And I think that's intriguing because it addresses some of the pain points of software development. Our own uh, um, Rashir, another fellow at IBM, has been pioneering the notion of, of uh, CodeNet, which is, in a way, kind of like ImageNet, but looking at code bases to see if we can develop ground truth from that and build from it. So I think it all goes back to the most important question, which is what are the use cases and what are the pain points in software development? And therefore, how might AI help us in those regards? I think there are two or two or three broad categories. The first is looking at it from the needs or the perspective of the individual developer. Things like, you know, Copilot are interesting because they sit side by side with me. In a way, they're uh, a pair programmer who can help me on just writing certain lines of code. And Copilot, having been trained on a lot of GitHub repositories and the like, sort of knows what contemporary development looks like. That's the upside. Think of it as a very sophisticated code complete, autocomplete. But we must be careful there are a number of studies that have suggested that some 40% of the code that's generated is really full of security flaws. So this is a moral lesson with AI that it is our companion and we must trust it, but we must verify it as well. So that's the first days. I think we'll see AI helping accelerate some of the things the individual developer does. The second is, and going back to the architectural point I made earlier, we're beginning to see architectural and design patterns for neural networks. And that helps because it therefore tells me ways in which I can integrate AIs into my self -develop software development process. The last thing I want to do is if I build a system is to have to deal with all the risk of building models and all these kinds of things from scratch. So in some ways, it's what's happened. It's like what's happened in the open source world. I don't really start from scratch anymore. I say, hey, let's pick Kafka, Kafka, or maybe I'll choose RabbitMQ or whatever makes sense. And we're getting to the point where the same kinds of frameworks are coming up in the AI space. Uh, I'll use TensorFlow, and there are so many models around it that I can begin to do. So the good news is the AI communities and the software engineering communities are beginning to speak a common language, and that helps. On the efficiency side, I think there are some intriguing possibilities, especially in the DevOps space. I've seen this especially true with people who are dealing with observability. Trying to understand the behavior of distributed systems is hard. And as I move toward multiple microservices, complex services, trying to understand how they work and debugging them is very, very difficult and trying to optimize them as well. So I'm beginning to see folks that are trying to apply AI to actually help me understand my normal symbolic systems. So in that sense, exciting time because we're really on the beginning cusp of this, but I see more and more folks trying to bring the AI tooling to the problems of software and systems development.
Yeah, yeah. And also in one of the episodes, we talked about the ML ops, right? The whole ops part of it is something yes. where AI can really augment that entire uh, CICD pipelines that we might have and that, that, you know, that changes the fabric of how softwares have been created till now. It does. And to, to that point, this is where we have a common language, because the notion of continuous integration, continuous deployment, continuous architecture is something that really did evolve from the symbolic software engineering side. And it wasn't long for that to be taken up by the AI community. So that gave us a place in which we could intersect and work together fairly easily. Yeah. And, and how do you see the word of low code, no code, right? I mean, that's 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 so different from the world that, that you started where like, you know, it's a lot of programs and you program it the right way, the optimized way. And now we are in a world with AI where it's like low code, no code. Well, the idea of no code, I think, makes as much sense as the singularity. It's a meaningless term that no serious researcher uses because it's a great way to sell books. Now that's kind of harsh, but let me go into it. The entire, the entire history of software engineering is one of rising levels of abstraction. So the idea of no code is catchy, but there may not be code, but there's still some degree of abstraction in programming because I have to specify in one way or another, what behavior do I want? We saw in the work that, uh, uh, back in the days of Visual Studio, it was like, oh my gosh, I don't need to code anymore. And you could do some remarkable things with Visual Studio. The problem is that once you start iterating upon it, people started building businesses on visual basic models and they're very, very fragile indeed. So we're gonna run across the same phenomenon. The good news is that we're seeing more and more people finding the opportunity to need automation in places where the people needing it are not software developers. And that's great. From the inside of the software development world, we have that in a very big way. That's what frameworks are all about. I don't need to build a messaging system. I'll use Kafka. I don't need to build uh, uh, a security system. I could find a framework to deal with that. I can use Redis. I can use uh, uh, Node.js, any number of things like that. And the same thing I think is happening in the AI space as well too. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So in the low code, no code space, really what you're faced with is you have all these things around you that are already at high levels of abstraction and it's a matter of gluing them together. That's actually a good thing, but you're still coding in one way or another. It's just at a different level of abstraction. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of your object oriented design and, you know, you talked about abstraction and it seems abstraction is on steroids now, but it is yes. still abstraction. <laughs> yes, it's still abstraction. Abstraction is a fundamental way that we as humans attend to complexity, independent of software in really every mechanism. And in fact, you can probably trace back through evolution. Uh, neurons first appeared on the earth about 70 million years ago, and we've gone through a few iterations of it. And we do have abstractions, the way things are bundled, uh, the way they're, they're brought together. Uh, the folks at Numenta have discovered interesting patterns. They all represent evolutionary ways that have grown abstractions in our neural networks. We humans do the same thing, kinds of things in our software. Yeah, yeah. So while we are talking about abstraction, uh, you know, I, I uh, there are there are questions in the mind in the minds of our listeners, and that's about 
the super intelligent AI. And, you know, there are people who say AI will take over the world. Of course, you know, I have been I have been personally talking to so many people, you know, saying how to take take out the fear of fear of AI. But I sometimes wonder, um, were those fears there when when you started, when software, you know, when you were building software systems? And I, I say history predicts the future. So what are your views? Uh, why do people fear AI and how do we take out that fear from their minds? I think that it tells us something about the human species that that fear has existed for generations. Indeed, I can trace back to some of the mythologies in Greece about uh, the fears of artificial life. There is, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what story was it in. I think it was in, in the Odyssey where there was a, a, a golem, in this case, not a metal creature, but a clay creature that walked around Crete and threw stones at any sailors coming nearby. And yes, people were in fear of this artificial life. Jump forward to the times of Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, he built mechanical knights. War is a terrible, nasty thing. And we've always tried to move humans out of it. So he said, why don't we build these mechanical knights to do it? Jump forward to the 20s, 30s, and you find movies such as Metropolis, in which the machines take over. So, and the Terminator, up to the present day. So I think it tells us something about the nature of humanity that we have this fear. I wish Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, was around because he'd have some things to say about this. But in my studies of it, I think that quite frankly, that we as humans fear the gods and we fear becoming the gods ourselves. There's a, a delightful colleague of mine, Stuart Brand. He wrote uh, the uh, um, Whole Earth Catalog. And in it, he is the forward he speaks of, um, we are as gods and we might as well get good at it. So I think the fear is, the fear exists that there will be things that are godlike of our own creation that will take over. And that's, that's, the, that's baked into us. That being said, do I lose any sleep over it? Not a bit. Um, I did a TED Talk on it, so I'd refer people to that one. Indeed, the reason I did that TED Talk is this is around the time the book on superintelligence came out. Elon Musk uh, and uh, Bill Gates and, and Stephen Hawking were all saying, oh, yes, we fear the existential rise of, we have an existential fear of AI. And my TED Talk was basically saying, guys, it's not going to happen. Why do I not worry about that? It actually, there are many answers and go read the TED Talk on it. But I think the, there are two fundamental reasons why. The first is I would fear something that's super intelligent. If it's, if it's in a box, I'm not going to be worried about it. But it's only the super intelligent and super embodied things that would be fearsome. Indeed, that's why you see all the robots around me because my main AI, my main AI interest is embodied cognition, the cognitive agents that are in and of the world. Because okay. if a superintelligence does not have any ability to sense or act in the world, then, heck, I'm just going to unplug it. And the moment in time it does become embodied in the world, the nature of our, of our human systems and our natural systems and the ways that they are so interdependent of one another the idea of some super intelligent agent taking over, 
that's the mythology for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but not the nature of real systems engineering kinds of things. So, yeah, I don't worry about it. I, I really don't. If anything, the other reason I don't worry about it is, you know, I see how the sausage, the sausage is being made, that the kinds of intelligence systems we speak of might be ones that can, can classify faster, reason faster. But most contemporary AI and what I expect will happen in the next generation so are really mostly inductive reasoning kinds of things. They can classify stuff for us, but they don't do abductive reasoning. There's no sense of causality. And we're a long way in that regard. So AI is great. We've done some wonderful things, but there are generations of work ahead of us before we get to anything that I would consider super intelligent. To that end, ah, Ray, Ray Kurzweil. I'm about to tell you something that is my opinion, and my opinion only, not that of anybody living or dead, or that of IBM. And I think the notion of the singularity is just plain silly and a great way to sell books. Because to the, the notion of the singularity and the ability to upload our brain, we just don't even know enough about how the brain works to even get close to it. Wow. Singularity is silly. Okay. I got it. <laughs> and yeah, singularity. I, 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 yeah and i listened to your ted talk and you said the the easiest thing we can do is uh pull off the switch unplug it, <laughs> unplug it. Right. in fact uh, nice. alexa has been fl flirting with me during this because i i she's blinking at me right now and i'm going to shut her off so she doesn't bother me so yes i still have control now that being said i'll, I'll finish this off because i don't want to derail the rest of the questions um Rodney Brooks, a dear colleague of mine, it was asked a similar question. And he observed, you know, by the time the robots take over, we're not going to notice that we're not robots. That I frankly believe that we are in an exquisite co-evolution with our machines, that we are laying the foundation for the next generation of what there is to be. And it's an exciting thing to be in the midst of that. We are co-evolving with our software creations and who knows where that will lead yeah yeah co-evolution and and i remember the same kind of fears were there when when the first time a computer came out first time an elect electricity was invented so uh, yes uh, new inventions which are disrupting uh, fundamental things always tend to create uh, fears as well to tell a little history if i have the time for this because i am sure, a sure. student of history um so Remember, IBM was absolutely dominant in the computer business in the 60s. It was IBM and sort of everybody else. Yeah. And a lot of talk was about these computer brains and how they were going to take over the world. There was really an intentional effort, and I wasn't around them. This is, just comes from my reading, an intentional effort on IBM's part to say, no, 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 don't think of them as computer brains. There are just mechanical things there because to anthropomorphize them, treats them too much like us humans with all of our all of our problems and they're not they're mechanical things they're deterministic there's there's a long way to go from that but you know hey it's a great way to make a movie i mean the terminator was a really fun movie but i didn't and, lose any sleep over it yeah and and grossed uh, billions of dollars as well <laughs> yes <laughs> i'll tell you one of my most favorite movies in that space is bicentennial man i'm a great fan of Asimov's iRobot. And uh, indeed, you know, here's a crossover. The work I was doing on embodied cognition with my colleagues down in Austin and some work at NASA, 
here we've got a robot that could actually have enough torque it could kill a human and it could punch a hole through the side of the International Space Station. These are not behaviors you want. And so we literally were asking ourselves the question, how could we bring into an AI those kinds of elements of, of uh, ethical issues, uh, issues of mercy, if you will, which I know is one of the topics you want to talk about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 actually my next, uh, you know, question. That you know, uh, we have AI systems everywhere now in our cars, in our legal decisions, in our doctor's prescriptions. So, um, and moral frameworks and AI. This is this is an area which is which is still emerging. So, how do we infuse AI, mercy in soft in AI systems in software? Because um, these are things which are inherent to humans. Uh, but they are giving decision, and there is decision that power we are building. We ourselves are building that decision power into with AI. Indeed, and I do a lot of work internationally. I'm not traveling, but of course, I can move my body electronically. And I do a lot of work in the defense space as well. So the question you ask turns out to be not an academic one, but a very real one. I have a weapon system. To what degree should I yield control over to an AI? I have a surveillance system. To what degree should I allow that to even get out in the world? So the moment we begin speaking of ethics, we have to address the question of whose ethics? Because were I speaking to a Chinese audience, they would have a completely different ethical framework about the use of AI than I would for somebody in Switzerland. In the EU, they're largely banning facial recognition. Throughout China, they're saying, no, it is a valuable element for the control of the state. And they're fine with it. It absolutely is. So whose morality is the question we have to ask? That being said, I think there are some things for which we can, as humans, agree upon. There are bright lines, one of which, for example, is autonomous weapons. Having a drone that could do facial recognition and kill somebody without a human intervening. I take a hard stand against those kind of things. But now it gets a little bit more difficult. I build a system that looks for cancerous legions on the skin. Oh, but I only train them for Caucasians and it doesn't work well with people of color. So this is not an ethical issue, but it certainly is a very important human issue. A phrase you may often hear me say is that every line of code represents an ethical and moral decision, and it is especially so within the AI space. Now, let me go back to something I said earlier about characterizing the nature of AI systems. Most of them are really systems that work on the edge to classify. There are some systems, AI systems, that do decision-making. I'd put recommendation engines as, again, very intelligent statistical classifiers. Uh, facial recognition is that as well. But once you start moving to causal reasoning, once you start moving to abductive reasoning, and let me explain that, abductive reason is theory building which says that I look at a set of things and I build a theory for how they work together. And to its further element, I build a theory of mind. Honestly, I don't know if you're an Android or not. I have no way of knowing. I have a theory that you're a living, breathing human person, but I can't prove it. And so this is really the next stage. And I see there's some wonderful research beginning to move into that space. And until an AI 
is aware of itself, is aware of its own mortality, is aware of a theory beyond itself, then trying to build, bring in these elements like mercy and such, they're impossible because they're outside the realm of it. It would be like teaching my washing machine uh, to be fair and equitable, can't do it. So you have a long way to go there, but we can do so much now to attend to biases and to stop those bright red lines. Yeah. Um, yeah. The reflection of society is what comes in and, you know, the whose ethics is, is, is a very important uh, question because the societal norms are do change. And like in prehistoric times, we, you know, we used to have single moral code of conduct, but the code of conduct is now different in different societies, which have like, of course, which inhabit the entire world. Yes. So how do you have a common code of conduct is, 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 is a very difficult thing. And, and what happens is that with AI, people have actually started writing it because it has been existing in us and passed in generations, but it's, it was not a written. There are a lot of ethical things which are not written. But with AI, because we are writing them down, they are coming to the fore. Yes. I'm delighted to see every organization that's serious about AI having some degree of AI ethics associated with it. IBM, we've got Francesca Rossi, who represents us at the Foundation for AI. The EU has its own foundational descriptions for what AI ethics are. The IEEE, the ACM, the British Computer Society, these are all good things. The challenge, however, is that they have to be turned into more than just words. When you see, I won't mention the name of the company, but it's a certain company that made a very popular car in Europe and basically their developers uh, fudged it so that it lied about uh, emissions. And I mean, it happens. And when those circumstances happen, we as professionals in this space have to rise up and say, no, you shall not pass. This is fundamentally wrong. And this, this is indeed one of the areas that I, in the position I'm in, in, in the space, I try to call out truth to power in that regard okay that that's that's really good and 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 some as an example for for a lot of others to follow as well so so then how do we handle rogue systems right there would be rogue systems and there would be miscreants you know peddling with things so 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 how do we handle how do we keep them in check well let me give you an example from high performance trading there certainly have been experiences in in high performance trading systems where bots were unleashed to the world and just started going nuts. And they generated huge dips and spikes and buying that shouldn't have happened. That's a great example of a system that was very complex where the introduction of an agent that did some, in this case, it wasn't, wasn't malicious. It was benign, but just stupid and wrong. And it went utterly rogue. In that case, ultimately, there were humans watching it. And though there was damage done, at least we could observe that damage. So I think that's the key, that we have to view systems that are human critical as ones in which the human has to be in the loop. If it's human critical, humans, by gosh, ought to be a part yeah. of that as well, too. Yeah. And that means having building them with human you know, intervention and use cases, having human observability, and having a human way to stop things as well. Got it, got it. And humans need to stay at the center of it. Yes, um, but we have to be careful because humans themselves can be rogue 
And so now we're in the realm of systems that this is not a technical issue, but it's a human and social issue. Indeed, if I may dare go out on a limb, these are the kinds of things with the the crypto community and the 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 Web three community and the uh, distributed autonomous organization community. I think there some of them are beginning to realize it, but I think there's a a misunderstanding of how much human nature plays in these in these roles here. Yeah, that, that's that's a that's another topic of discussion. Oh yeah, we could spend an hour there. <laughs> we can spend an hour. I completely understand. Yeah, so. Um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, we talked about the humans and, you know, how, you know, the the human mindset itself drives the rogue systems, right? I mean, that's that's also what you're hinting at. But if we want to enhance the human life, right, and we always go towards a better and, a, uh, you know, that's what we have strived for, right, from inventing the wheel and the tools and the fire till today, you know, we are just inventing. And why we are doing it? Because we are enhancing our lives. We feel that we can go to a better uh, you know, abstraction where, you know, we are more comfortable, we are more convenient, we are more satisfied, happier. So how do you think AI enhances human life? A few years ago, I was almost dead. Every male in my family has died of an aortic aneurysm. It's uh, an aneurysm, a thinning of the vascular walls. Uh, and the problem is that if it bursts, if you're on the operating table, there's a chance you might live. But if it bursts, you just bleed out within just a few minutes. And my father, my uncle, and my nephew all died of it. So it's symptomless, too, which is the problem. But after my nephew died, suddenly at age 20, I had a, a CT scan. And I remember, which, by the way, unveiled that I had an aneurysm as well, too. And good news, it's all been fixed. I've got Dacron in my chest. Thank I had open heart surgery. So I don't know. I'll just... I'll just die of a paper cut or something for who knows, but it's not going to be an aneurysm. No, no. <laughs> and I remember laying there in the CT scan and as the machine was going about me and I looked at the title on it, it said, Hmm, Siemens, so-and-so, why does that name sound so familiar to me? And I realized, Oh my gosh, I know the developers that wrote the code for this machine and they use the UML. So uh, software kind of saved my life and I care about that as well too. And what's exciting is that we see so many places where we see AI beginning to not replace human judgment, but to augment human judgment and, and such. Uh, look at MNRA uh, and what's happened in just the, the COVID vaccines. Uh, there are elements of AI in that whole process. It's an incredibly computationally uh, deep uh, process that led us to the mRNA uh, vaccines today too, and project out now to what AlphaFold has done and the ability to to predict proteins and how they fold. My gosh, we're going to see a revolution in healthcare because of what AI has brought to us, and therefore, what an exciting time to be in this world and how it's advancing the development of drugs. That's just one place of it. Look at our cars. I'm not a great fan of Elon's approach to uh, to uh, uh, his driving mechanisms, FSD. I think he made a systems engineering mistake. He didn't use LIDAR. And so he, he switched the risk from from hardware to software. And that's another wow, problem. Yeah. Bring, bring Elon on the program and I'd be happy to debate him and tell him how he's wrong. <laughs> but I think he's a little busy right now. 
<clears throat> so, but there is a case for it. Um, I've got in my house now uh, a new photovoltaic system that puts me about 80 to 90% off the grid. And there are elements of AI that do the management of the battery. It's all around me. And that's, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I would love to see your debate with Elon <laughs> for, for some I other like day. I like debating with people who are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's get into some crystal ball gazing. Uh, you created history with with you know the software engineering processes. Now, now how do you see the future of software getting shaped with AI? Uh, how how do you how do you see ahead with with all this moral frameworks as well as human intervention? Where do you think is is what you think is going to be revolutionary impact? There's a phrase I often use at the end of my lectures. That I'll repeat here that speaks of the privilege and the responsibility to be a software developer. Software is the invisible writing that whispers the stories of possibility to our hardware. Software is the invisible writing that whispers the stories of possibility to our hardware. And you are the storytellers. So we as developers are in this remarkable place where we create the future. Any future you might conceive of depends upon software that has not yet been written. The good news is, from a software engineering perspective, I think we as an industry have a pretty good idea of how to develop software. We've codified the mechanisms to do it. We understand the processes. We've provided tooling for it. We have codified architectures and design patterns in our frameworks. There is so much that we have there. And now we're on the cusp of introducing AI into what we're doing. And as we said at the beginning here, I think there are opportunities for AI to help the individual developer as well as the entire development process. So that's cool. I think what the most exciting thing is, there are so many things yet to be automated for us. And I look forward to the future where I actually have more free time to do things because the software your risk listeners are, are creating are doing that for me today. Yeah. It's an exciting so, time. Higher order things. So we move to the higher order things so that we have intellectually, you know, uh, bandwidth to do, to, to, to definitely, you know, get into a different sphere altogether. The entire history of software engineering is one of rising levels of abstraction. And we are all making that happen. Yeah, and we go back to the object-oriented principles, that higher level of abstraction. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So we well, we in, start in, we go back to where we started. <laughs> we do. It's a nice circle to it. And in fact, it, I mentioned some of the mythologies from Greek, from Greek Greece time, Greek times. Uh, some of the writings of Plato and Socrates actually influenced my understanding of object-oriented design. There's this wonderful dialogue. Uh, Plato wrote, in which, and I forget the names of the characters, they're debating about the goodness of one particular thing. And one gentleman is looking at it from the point of view of process. The other is looking at it from the point of view of objects. So I think the very fact that we see in the first generation of, our, of, of software engineering, it was more process-oriented. The generation I helped create was more object-oriented. We basically reinvented some things that are fundamental to the cosmos, if you will, in terms of how we decompose systems. Is there another one? Don't know, but 
you know, these two certainly work hand in hand with one another. Wow. And it was a privilege to be a part of the creation of that. Great, great. And it's been my privilege to talk to you today and learn from you. Uh, amazing, amazing. Uh, thank you, Grady. Thank you so much for such uh, thought-provoking conversations. Uh, it was a pleasure learning about the history and as well as the future of software with AI. Um, I, of course, am a great fan of uh, history and I love the stories that you have been you know, telling, uh, telling us. It, it, it brings back to the reality that history, yes, teaches us and it's an eye to the future. So uh, thank you, Grady. Thank you for being here and pleasure to have you here. My pleasure. Stay safe, everyone. Yes, thank you. So friends, uh, I'm signing off on this episode eight of AI Infusion. Hope you enjoyed our discussions with Grady Booch. And we will be back with more stories of applications infused with AI. See you all in our next episode, where we have another great speaker with a fresh perspective to AI. Bye and see you again. Yay.